Hey, Piers, it's Michelle. I've got some exciting news. The Piers Project has just produced a podcast for Red by Modi Body, the iconic period underwear brand for tweens and teens. In this new podcast series, The Red Tales, we share stories celebrating the messy and iconic parts of our teenage years and bodies. Every fortnight, we'll be joined by a young Aussie who isn't afraid to open up, laugh and celebrate the time they got their first period, stood up to their first bully and recovered from their first heartbreak. So make sure to tune in now to our podcast for Modi Body, The Red Tales, on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, or just head straight to the link in this episode's description. Now let's get into this episode. This is the Peers to Peers podcast, powered by The Peers Project. Hello, Peers. Welcome to the Peers to Peers podcast. Peers speaking, Peers listening. This is a conversation for you. I'm your host, Michelle Akitanor, founder of The Peers Project, millennial entrepreneur, world traveler, podcast expert, and forever your fellow passionate peer. Each week, I invite inspiring millennial entrepreneurs from around the globe to chat with me. No filters, just real talk, peer-to-peer. Together, we unpack what it takes to go your own way and why there's nothing better. As always, thank you for listening. If you enjoy our podcast, please do pass it on. The more peers, the merrier. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Peers to Peers podcast. For all of our restless peers out there who find it difficult to stay in one place, you're not alone. Sometimes moving from one job to another can actually boost your skill set and set you up as an impressive Jack or Jill of all trades. Here to show us how it's done is the impressive Ayla Kreb. Ayla has spent over a decade advising teams across the globe on commercialization strategies, sales, and business development. In short, she helps startups bring money through the doors so that they can become profitable, thriving businesses. I'm super excited to speak to Ayla today about her high-powered career and how all of us can leverage our skills to achieve success from one job to the next. For those of you who haven't yet, make sure to take a screenshot of this episode right now, post it to your Instagram story and tag us at The Peers Project so that other peers out there can benefit from the wisdom of these incredible millennial entrepreneurs. Okay, without further ado, here is my conversation with the amazing Ayla Kreb. Isla, welcome to the Peers to Peers podcast. We're so excited to have you on the show today. Thank you. Appreciate it. Amazing. So, you know, you and I connected recently through a past podcast guest of ours, Will Fan. And, you know, when I looked into you and all of the amazing work that you're doing in startup land and business and tech, I knew I had to have you come on the show. So I really appreciate you taking the time. Pleasure. My pleasure. Hope to be helpful. Amazing. 
Amazing. So look, for those of us who don't know who you are and what you do, talk to us a little bit about yourself. Sure. So um, I am originally Swedish and German. I'll start with the chronological background info about myself, probably the easiest to locate me, but also it says a lot about my background. So I'm originally Swedish and German. I moved to the US when I was uh, 17. So I lived in San Fran for about half a decade. And then I came out to Singapore and I've been here for 10 years. I kind of had an uh, uncommon start. I I never went to university. I actually um, did not finish three degrees. And uh, at the same time, I was always working. I, I really enjoyed uh, the process of uh, of just generating revenue. And back then, I didn't really get it. But uh, sales was my early on uh, skill set, that was maybe uh, a component of being unafraid or whatever that might be. Um, but I ended up in like luxury retail and hospitality sales um, right out of uh high school. And then when I moved to Singapore, it was just at the cusp uh, or more like at the bud uh, of the startup ecosystem kicking off. And that was in 2009, so November 1st, 2009 that I came. And literally there was no startup ecosystem here. I assisted in building the very first co-working space that Singapore had and another one after that. But within the last 10 years, I spent my entire time uh, just generating revenue for startups. So I work with them in a capacity of business development, uh, customer success, straight up sales. I've done quite a bit of marketing work as well. And now I would say that my my core skill set also has spilled over into fundraising. So I work with a VC group out of uh, Chicago that I've built up and uh, where we also do syndication of different startups and now are uh, actually helping funds uh, rollout. So we, we were like a VC in a box service at this point. So if you think of uh, dollars in the door um, for startups, that's kind of where my core expertise is at the moment. I love that. And, you know, as startup founders, we always love to hear about dollars. So um, no, it's so cool that you've been able to kind of nurture that. And especially that you almost, you didn't almost go out to do that. You, you've had a really interesting trajectory, which I want to dive a bit deeper into, but I guess I guess to start off with, a question I always find to be very insightful and revealing is actually going right back to your childhood. So, you know, you mentioned that you grew up in Germany, Sweden, you know, talk to us a little bit about that time there. You know, what do you think, how do you think it impacted the choices you've made in your life and in your career so far? Uh, Probably one of the more telling bits is that I've always had massive problem with (laughs) authority of any way, shape, or form. I really hate it when anybody tells me what to do. I still to this day get like anxiety when somebody sends me calendar invitation. I was just telling my partner this this morning. I was like, really? What I hate is the calendar invitation. Someone tells me where to do and when. <laughs> I hate it. So, so I've always been like that. I, I moved out of my parents' house when I was 15. I I really wanted to go to boarding school when I was 10. So I presented my, my dad, who was very sweet, um, really sweet, adorable man, um, and who would never say no to anything. He was a stay-at-home dad with me. And I presented three options for a boarding school. And I told him that I was going to go to boarding school and I picked mine. And if he could please drive me so I could select. <laughs> so so I'd, I think I've always been very self-directed um, in that way. And when I moved to the U.S. as well, I mean, this was like senior year of high school. I did not, I hadn't even been accepted to 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 school at all. Like I I had no visa or nothing. I was following uh, the infatuation who then later became a husband and then later an ex-husband. But um, so I've always been somebody who just <laughs> did not take no for an answer. And, um, and also very open to everything changing at any point in time. And um, I don't, I, I'm just missing a lot of the institutionalization because I have 
had such a varied background. I've never been, was never at a school for longer than two years. Singapore is as long as I've ever lived, but I've, I've, all of my, all my work has always been very, you know, two year, two year, two year, and often multiple things at the same time. Um, at any point, I'm usually running about three or so projects at the same time. So, so yeah, I, I think that a childhood where, and where I believe that I could kind of influence my own path has just continued on into adulthood. And I love that. I think it's it's fascinating. Even when I was looking through like kind of your history, your work history, and it is actually like two years, two years, two years. And I think that so, you know, I think that society, I say that in quotation marks, is almost frown, it's almost like it, they frown upon that. And I always struggle to understand that as an entrepreneur because I swap and change every five seconds. But, you know, I think what advice would you give to our peers out there listening who feel like maybe – that, you know, they have to follow that traditional route. You know, it's all they've ever seen. It's what their teachers tell them. It's what their parents have told them. And, you know, maybe they don't have kind of the courage that you did at such an early age to go, hey, that's not for me. You know, what advice would you give to them? For me, it was never about that's not for me. It's always like I've capped out. And uh, and also that's the reason why I was um, always on about three projects at the same time, just because A, a lot of these skills are transferable across and and I just believe in stacking. I think my experience and skill set has is is tripled out of most people my age, and just the, the amount of stuff that I've seen and and things I've been involved in. Anything from from SaaS to robotics, uh, you know, I've, I've touched pretty much everything. Now, the one thing I would say is that you do want to have is a red thread that um, lends itself to a certain level of consistency in your own narrative. Like for example. Uh, when I'm working with my team out of Chicago, where we help VCs spin up their their first fund, the number one thing we look for is congruency in your own narrative and skill set. So to be able to say to somebody, yes, we believe that you have a lot of experience in, for example, the space of sales, you've got 10 years of experience. Can you narrate that backwards? And it's okay to have done it in multiple different places, but were you able to build something in each place? And then does it all kind of fit and build on top of each other? So that narrative is quite important. Now, that said, sometimes you it does take you into three different directions in the beginning. You might start out in, in technology and then find that to be too stifling. And then um, you might end up uh, moving into more of a product management role. And then on top of that, you might think, oh, even this is not right for me. I'd rather go into, let's say, more of a leadership and operations role. Still, then you're at least within text. The narrative can be congruent. So, think of it not as necessarily I need to be in one job for X amount of time. It's more about I have the same trajectory, and everything builds on each other. So you're not burning bridges or are hopping around. You kind of have a view of where you might be headed, and then you can also look backwards and, and connect the dots that way. Mm. Such valuable advice. No, I love it. So I'd like to dive deeper into that time where you kind of moved from the US through to Singapore. You know, you said you were like one of the first to kind of start up that startup ecosystem over there, you know, and you have been there for a while now. Talk to us a little bit about that time there. What was it like? You know, how did you even go about doing that? Um, so with no with no level of strategy at all. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We love it that way. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I could be all very pretend that I thought about this thoroughly and had a plan when I arrived, but people I was 21 years old, I had no clue. Um, so I I showed up and I had no visa and I ended up getting a long-term visitor pass, which means you cannot do absolutely nothing besides sit at the pool. So 
I ended up volunteering with this organization called IDA. It's a business school, micro business school for domestic helpers. So I decided to just start working with them to clean up their curriculum. Well, I started out doing admin and then I started cleaning up the curriculum. And then over time, took on bigger, bigger parts of, of that work. And then I met an interesting lady uh, called Laura Dudley. And her and I started a small consultancy where we worked with startups from across the board, like anything from fitness studios to custom shoe manufacturers. And uh, helped them kind of get off the ground, build their ops plan, build their financial models. I did all of the marketing. Uh, we then built out like a six to nine month strategy for them. Any new product that they had to look at that could generate new revenue streams that we could eat, not like as in we didn't design shoes. It's more saying like, okay, one of the things that you could do, a product line could be, for example, your pop-up stores or what we call then a trunk show um, that you could carry around and that becomes an individual product of itself with these like trunk show parties, et cetera. Um, so I did that. And um, as part of it, I ran into a lady called Grace. Grace was starting the first co-working space in Singapore and they needed somebody to sit with all the different startups and help them mainly with this commercialization bit. And uh, because I, by just literally by having done it a few times, had more experience than anybody else. I was a very good fit for that. And then I, and I love having conversations. So I don't think anybody has as much stamina as I have for like 30 conversations in a day. So they just put me on a sofa and said, just start talking to people, start connecting to them, see what you can figure out what they need and then um, connect them to each other or to mentors on the outside or, you know, investors, whatever they might have that we have in the network and can support with. So that's kind of how the ball got rolling. And uh, and back to the concept of narrative, congruent narrative and momentum, it's really just about building on that and not letting go, you know, don't drop the ball. I love that you were just so many points from that, but you were just 21. You know, I think most of us aren't even, we're just finishing up with our studies. We don't even know what life is about. And you moved to a completely different country, although you'd done that before and just dove head first into, you know, a scene that you didn't know much about. As you said, you were one step ahead, ahead of everyone else. Where do you think that confidence, maybe that inner confidence to do that comes from? And do you think it's something that can be developed? That confidence has obviously a flip side as well, is that, you know, every, every, I, to me, I think everything is possible. And also believe that time and space is complete bullshit. You, it really does not. It, it's not. It's it's a complete construct that it takes you two years to learn something, or one year to learn something, or that it takes you ten years to be deeply involved in a relationship, or that you need five years for friendship. All those things, it, they're completely irrelevant in my mind. So I don't have a concept for it, and that just allows me to not see all the limitations. I'm slightly blind to them. I've gotten better over time to actually think things through and do a bit more of like scenario planning in my head, but that also, you know, it's, it has an effect. You become maybe a bit more cautious. The core thing that I have learned over time when it comes to just looking at new opportunities, not popping on everything is, you know, what is the, what's the actual ROI on this? If I extrapolate this action out across, let's say um, 10, 15 times, maybe in 10 months, um, where do I believe that could take me? And is it really a high potential opportunity? So that I've gotten a lot better at. And and I've also noticed that that gives me even more confidence in making a decision. So just being able to run the mental experiment of where something could take you, even that, and, and then imagining that really very few things can actually go wrong that will be long-term harmful um, is super helpful. I love that. Why do you think so many of us are afraid to take that leap and actually dive in? Probably you have a lot more. Do you believe that you have a lot to lose? 
which I never really felt like I did, uh, kind of living pretty light and, and things that are most important to me, you, you can't lose by making any of these kinds of mistakes anyways. Um, so, so like a career mistake is never going to, you know, cost me a partner, for example, because then I'm not with the wrong partner who, who likes me for my career. So that's, so that a lot of the bigger, the bigger losses that I could suffer have nothing to do with these kinds of risks. They're completely separate work streams in a way. So maybe being able to divide your ego from your career decisions or your own value from your career decisions, that alone um, will will do all sorts of good for your for your brain to be able to relax and really just jump into things. And just out of curiosity, I want to dive a bit deeper into that time there after that initial startup, the the um organ the ecosystem, the accelerator. But as startup founders, I think so many of us can get up in our head around, you know, oh my goodness, this new decision, or is that is, is the right time, or the money's running out. I think we've because we've got so much to think about. Sometimes it can just all get a bit meshed up. But I love that idea of the separation between ego and you know, almost like from what you do and what, how we're achieving as a business to my own personal worth. Do you have any like kind of tips and strategies around how to practically do that? If you're starting a company, if you run one, or even if you're thinking about doing that. One of the things that I always thought was very valuable is knowing that what's going to happen if all things fail. Uh, most people have a sofa to sleep on, like a friend or a family member or something. Most uh, kind of when they get a bit um, older as well, they they often have a, a bit of savings, a backup plan. So running yourself all the way to zero is just super not clever because it turns your brain into survival mode and then you start making all sorts of retarded decisions. So that's another part. It's almost like if you can in your brain play out, if everything went to shit, what would, what would tomorrow look like? Like what would the average Tuesday look like? And you realize that just means that, you know, I'm, I'm going to be cooking, you know, baking a chicken in the oven. And I'm going to be staying with my sister for, for six months. Then, and, and if that's the absolute worst case scenario, then that is not the worst thing in the universe. Another one is that a lot of people are, are worried whether they're going to be embarrassed either A, by the startup itself or B, by the failure thereof. And and that comes back to the narrative. If you can at any point in time uh, kind of with a clean conscience look at yourself and you still feel good about the actions that you took to push yourself forward uh, and the work that you put in, but also be aware of all the experience you're collecting along the way, your own narrative to yourself becomes less of a, oh shit, sunk cost kind of thinking versus, wow, what an experience um, this is going, I'm, I'm learning a lot. There's a lot of ways in which this can be valuable to me, even if this thing goes totally to the shitter. Um, another bit that I've also learned is extrapolating out. Your first startup is rarely the one that's going to succeed. Maybe the third one. Most of the time I see founders really get good at about the third or fourth venture. So venture one has a lot to do with, I I love this problem. I'm very passionate about solving for this, so I'm going to dive head in. The second round, it's always about more or more more often than not about business model. Because uh, the first time around, they, they forgot about the business model thing and they learned the hard way that that's probably something we should think about upfront. So then you, you become the spreadsheet monkey. You're like, I'm not going to start anything again until I can extrapolate how this is going to make money and why there's a big enough market and how I'm going to acquire a customer without killing myself. And then and the third one, you've actually, if you again, acted in clean conscious and behaved not like a jerk along the way, you will have built a lot of really good relationships because you would have shown that you're willing to do just about anything. You're putting on a shit ton of work. You're treating people really well. 
that's going to end up fantastic in the third round because then uh, your startup is actually a, kind of a combination, unless you're really deep tech R&D. So I'm not talking now about like deep tech R&D startups because that's a different storyline. But if you're thinking of something kind of lighter tech, mainly business model innovation, then in by the last round, you will have all the parts. Like you already know your co-founder because that's somebody you worked with, might've been your early employee or you might employ their company. You know your early hires already that you want to bring on board, that you know most of your, your, your starting pot of customers, you're already aware of them. You probably have about 10 years of experience, like life work experience. Um, so you have a whole different level of credibility and experience to just lean on. Uh, and it becomes more of a plug and play model. So the third time around, you actually feel pretty good about what you're building and you're, you're, you're much more secure in it. So also seeing your, again, your, your life choices as a, as a series of decisions versus, you know, singular failure points. It's really helpful for your brain to relax a bit and then be able to say, okay, is this decision worth it? Yes, because I can extrapolate it going here. Or, or no, it's not worth it. It looks like a really short-sighted, tiny path um, that's not going to take me very far. Oh, so interesting. And it's just so true. I'd love, I'm curious to know, you know, in those early days when you were just in your, you know, 20s, you're trying to figure it out, you're in, hot, you're in Singapore, working through that time there, you know, were you ever in the mindset of, is this right for me? You know, is this what I'm supposed to be doing? Like, when did this mindset around the narrative and it's okay, it's just part of my narrative develop? And yeah, what, where, when did that mind shift, set shift happen for you? Well, it's a little bit around, um, so like, when did I, did, okay, let's turn this around. Do I still sometimes think that this is not what I should be doing. I am 100% prepared at any point in time to completely change my mind. It's very possible that you'll find me in in six months somewhere, you know, on a in Canada uh, with 15 cows and just tending a farm. It's very possible, you know. I would find a way to sell that <laughs> milk for more than most people. <laughs> Trust <Yeah>. me. <laughs> There will be a game plan behind this marketing. I, still, I sometimes joke with my partner that we should move to India and I'll just kick off coconut farm. Um, and Perfect. Yeah, I mean, exactly. Cheap living, really no stress. I mean, Correct. Who, there's no such thing as too many coconuts. Uh, oh, never. <laughs> so that's kind of, so I could always see that, you know, I'm always ready for a complete um, uprooting of all life. I, I, I'm like 100% ready at all times. The one thing that I would probably say is that knowing what I'm what I'm good at and knowing what I'm not good at has helped a lot. So my dad used to, and he's, he's he was a nurse, but he he had these really great life wisdoms that just would pop up, and I'd be like, "Huh, genius!" But talk a lot about uh, when the flow. You know, do I feel flow when I'm doing this? Does the time disappear? Does it come effortless to me? Am I like naturally just better at this than most people? Do I have, do people pay attention to me? Do I light up, et cetera? So for me, that's always been this concept of positioning in sales, getting in front of people, beating down doors, being persistent. I know that I'm quite smart, but I will never be the smartest person in the room by far, but I will most likely be the one that'll put in the most grind work or find a really clever way to get somebody else to do the grinding. So that's that's something that I know I'm able to do. And, and when you feel that flow, that it's a lot easier to keep going on that. Most people are just so scared and so distracted that they won't notice when they're in flow or they don't give themselves the opportunity to actually get into flow. So when you ask them, what are you really good at? They're like, oh, I'm not so sure. 
Like, what do you mean you're not so sure? Is there anything you enjoy doing? Oh, uh, kind of a little bit. But if you actually had been in a flow doing that thing, you would definitely know that. So it's a bit of a distraction bit. If you can not slow down necessarily, but pay better attention to how you feel when you do things, that'll be a really good indication. Um, and when you kind of follow that flow, uh, a lot of stuff just emerges because you you become a bit magnetic. Other people pay attention to you and they notice things that you're really good at. When was the first time you really felt like you were in flow? Mm, I think first time when I when I was, well, there's a few things that I do that it put me in flow. So I, when I was like what, 11 or 12 or so, I learned how to sew. And that became my thing when I, when you go to a high school in Sweden, for example, you have to pick your major for high school. So I picked, uh, I basically fashion design, but the thing that I was really good at is drawing and sewing. And, uh, and that you just eight hours would just disappear with absolutely nothing. And then um, when I started working at Ralph Lauren in that sales team, the stuff that really put me into flow was conversations with customers, just building relationships with them, understanding what they're doing. Even even cold calling, getting on the phone with strangers had a flow element to it because once you get into to having a discussion with them, that just, uh, you know, you're, you're properly paying attention. You're really in the moment. And, and that was that was definitely a flow indication for me. And it's still that same thing. Now, that's kind of translated over into other tasks as well. Uh, so deep thought, work, deep thought work, for example, um, love myself some spreadsheets and business modeling. Um, that's kind of what I've gotten better and better at now over the last, say, five years or so. On top of that, also kind of proposal writing and deck design and and, and, you know, crafting that narrative on paper is one thing to say, it's another thing to model it, and then it's a third thing to put it on, on paper in a convincing way, whether that be like a report or a deck. So those things have also become flow moments because that same conversation in my head, I'm basically telling the story of the business on paper in an Excel sheet to the person that I'm pitching to. So that, you know, that positioning portion is quite valuable. It's so amazing. I think it it's so interesting how it's translated from like your childhood all the way through to like almost just that, as you said, those last five years. In terms when it comes to sales, I think obviously you're an absolute guru. You know, for us, for our peers out there listening who maybe they're trying to sell themselves into a job, a new job position, or maybe it's that they're trying to get new funding for their startup, or maybe it's like me and they're trying to get new clients on board. You know, what are kind of those key maybe three things that they should initially do in order to start those conversations? And then when they're in the conversation, you know, what's the methodology or, you know, what would be your tips around that? Yeah. So the first thing I would do is start with the end in mind. So never start a custom conversation where you don't believe that that person has money to pay or has, or, or there's no real burning need. So, cause one of the things that we often do in the beginning is we try to burn the ocean because we're like, oh, we don't know who needs what. I'm like, yeah, but with a bit of logic, you can pick an industry that's not dying right now. And you, and then the second portion is, uh, so a, knowing who to sell to. But once you know who to sell to, who actually has the potential to pay enough um, so that it's worth it for you, think about what you're actually, what is the package that you're selling to them that's easy to get started with. And it, when I think of this stuff, I also think of it as in terms of collateral. So when I say, who are you selling to? I would ideally have like 10 uh, LinkedIn profiles of the ideal customers. So that's super tangible. If you want to do, you can reach out to them. Um, that second portion around the product, what are you actually going to be selling to them? That that will be whatever fits in a deck, right? Or on a on a one page product um, offering. So is that how is it easy for them to get started? What are the terms of that? Most companies will, or especially startups, will be like, 
I'm selling you, uh, I mean, I'm selling you a crate of bananas and, and then they're all proud of their new product offering. And then the customer comes back like, oh, that's interesting. How big is the crate? How many bananas are inside the crate? How long do the bananas last? How long does it take to ship them to me? Um, if they're broken, can you get me new bananas? If half of them are broken, do I have to return the whole thing? Like all these detailed questions that you don't think about, what's your FAQ that goes with the product so that you can show them you've actually thought through the the use case end to end. And then the last bit is um, in terms of the scalability of this, if you if you approached X market and sold N number of products, what size business is this going to be? Uh, does it have the potential to net you a million bucks a year? Okay, so that's a good starting point. But if you can only see um, a few hundred thousand dollars coming out of that business, chances are you only get a fraction of that. And then in a nutshell, you might as well get a job because it's if you think of the ROI, and it's a little bit like if you stop thinking about time as time, but you start thinking about time as capital. So you're basically employing your time capital into an activity and you're hoping for a certain return. Now, if you're spending eight hours a day with no stress, netting $100,000 a year, or if you're spending 16 hours a day in a shit ton of stress, netting $30,000 a year, and there's just no upside to it, like there's no no further you can go, then it doesn't make any mathematical sense. So that's another thing that I tell people. Even if you have a great market that's willing to buy X from you and you have a good product that fits them and it's easy for them to get started and you're quite knowledgeable about it, does not mean that that makes a good business at, at, a, at a scalable and you need to know what you want out of your life. And if you're then telling me that, hey, I want to work, um, I want to start a, uh, a quantum physics startup, I'm going to hire the best engineers, I'm going to do XXX, and I, and I tell them it's going to take you 10 years to get anywhere with that. It's yeah, expensive, I'm going to take you 10 years. And they're like, oh, but I kind of wanted to, you know, have a family, move to Alaska or whatever in the next three years. And you're like, well, that's going to be really difficult because the talent there is limited when it comes to quantum physics. So it's just, you know, thinking about the long term of your, of your idea or your decision making. Of course, you can easily get frozen then just overthinking it and, and anticipating that shit's going to go wrong all the time. There's no perfect answer. It doesn't have to be perfect, but it just has to be not completely opposite. So it's like when uh, Warren Buffett says, try to just not lose money, like a shit ton of money every time you lose. That's literally what you're doing. You're just trying to eliminate the big, 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 big errors. You're going to make many small ones. What do you think the value is in making big and small errors? The, the value of big errors is that it, it always uh, propels big change immediately. The value of small errors is that it's a tighter feedback loop. Big errors that, you know, the one Google see we make is anything that, has, that hurts someone else or, you know, it's just like over leveraging yourself in one way, shape or another. That can be either through relationships or, uh, or, or financially or just take on too many commitments. That over leverage bit uh, is one of them. And that's probably the one that I would be at fault for um, the most. In the beginning, you can't really estimate how much effort something will take. Uh, the smaller errors that have another are another danger because they're so small you sometimes can rationalize them and then you don't really pay attention to the fact that they're happening so that's another danger point altogether you become numb to your own smaller stupidities then just build up to a big shit show eventually uh, often just a shit show in terms of your reputation that takes a hit for being late canceling and all those other fun bits but yeah that's probably where i would say that the same is true for the upside as well if you, they, there's a term, instead of looking at it as a unicorn, you look at it as a workhorses. So if you're trying to bet on workhorses, companies that are workhorses that have a sound business model and in theory should function quite well, 
just from a logical, reasonable, can fit on a spreadsheet, does not need a billion dollars to get started, etc. That alone, like placing those bets really consistently and worthy of being consistently, that is a that's going to be massive value add. What do you think was the biggest bet that you placed on yourself throughout your journey today? I think the biggest bet on myself will always be that I'm totally unwilling to, to not see the opportunity. You know, when that when shit goes sideways, I look at it as, okay, cool. So maybe this eliminated X, Y, Z, and therefore I don't have to do this, this one thing or I don't get to do this one thing. But there's n number of ways that I can spin this. So always thinking of it as in every opportunity is eliminated. It's like one of many opportunities eliminated. It's not, there's no series of, of steps that are sequentially lined up. It's almost like a it's like a ball pit of many many opportunities. First one goes, it's like sales. You you hit on a hundred doors, two of them or ten of them are going to convert. Whether it's the first ten or the last ten or sprinkled across, there's no way for me to know. So almost taking it as a probabilistic game um, helps me just take bigger bets consistently with the same kind of thinking. So I don't really feel like any of them. They don't, none of them really feel like big bets in that same way. I think I'm taking bigger bets on a personal perspective, whether that being like on purpose, not uh, engaging certain relationships or on purpose building certain ones that I think are going to be really, really good for me and also good for the other person. That's a bigger bet, I think. So investing my time in relationships because those, a business is still an input and output game in my view with some element of luck. But personal relationships are literally more of a crapshoot because, you know, you have to be, you, you, there's no logic to tie it to. And a lot of times you just have to kind of feel your way into it and, and, and let all that right brain shit at the door. So I think that's a bigger, it's a bigger risk taking on my end. Mm, can totally see that. I love it. Okay. Well, Oh my goodness. I'm also respectful. Of, I'm trying to be respectful of your time as well, but I just, there's a couple few questions as we start to wrap up. I think what is it? So we've kind of talked about a lot of this, but you know, you work with a lot of high growth, high potential startups. I think is the way you put it. You know, what do you think are some of the key challenges that startups face in those very early days for our peers out there listening, thinking about, is it, you know, should I actually pursue this idea or I'm, st- I'm at the beginning, but oh my goodness, it's tough. You know, what do you think are the biggest hiccups and challenges they face? And what do you think is the best way to almost not avoid that, but I guess go in less blind? Yeah. I think just literally with the end in mind, because what the only purpose of a business like Barnan is revenue. So if you on day one, all you do is literally trying to figure out where's the revenue stream here. And, and not figuring out as like thinking it through, but more as in pitching it through, that will be a lot of value to you. I've been, I'm always a big fan, especially when it comes to non R&D type startups, to actually focus a lot of time on kind of more of a consultative selling. So actually selling your consulting service, performing the thing that you were going to build eventually, especially when it comes to technology, just because if you don't have the expertise and you can't sell your expertise to deliver the thing, then it's going to be very difficult for you to convince somebody that you've actually built the thing that you don't know anything about and that'll then fit them. So kind of keeping in mind that at the end of the day, there needs to be a customer that pulls out a checkbook is superbly helpful because then your entire brain just goes into not sales mode, but like understanding where is the value, what what triggers the yes here? Like 
who is hungry? Uh, what makes somebody hungry? What, what triggers those images in the head where they believe that they have a problem and you are the solution? That mindset versus, oh, I want to build this thing. I believe it will be beautiful. I can see all these benefits of it, but just never talking to the customer. But not just talking to the customer, but literally putting something in front of them they could buy as early on as possible. And also ripping off that Band-Aid and asking for the sale in, in almost off the bat. It's super hard. But like, how do you think you're going to, how are you going to ask somebody to pay you $150 an hour or $200 an hour, $500 an hour as a consulting fee? Or five grand for a starter project. If you, uh, you know, if if you can't ask them to do that, why would they spend thirty thousand dollars on an enterprise uh, software package with you a year later? They won't, and you won't know how to ask for that sale either. You won't know what their budgeting cycle is. You won't know what their timelines are. You won't know who the bosses are. You won't know what the internal decision making hierarchy is. You won't know where the decision is actually being made, whether it's here or some global office. Who knows? You just won't have all this information that you only get to. Like you won't know that getting a PO out of somebody takes 90 days. You won't know that payment terms can be another 90 days. You don't know that the actual sales cycle is, is six months. It like, like to go from first conversation to dollars in the door is literally 12 months. You won't even think that far if you don't start that sales conversation right away. So value is definitely something that I need to hear. So I'm sure all our peers out there listening are taking it in. Look, Ayla, oh my goodness, you've achieved so much and done so much over the last decade plus. And, you know, you've worked with some incredible founders, entrepreneurs, organizations, startups across APAC. I um, also saw that you did some time in Sydney, which is very exciting. You know, I think I just want to take a moment to acknowledge you for the amazing work you're doing, for showing us and foremost teaching us and guiding us young founders, and especially us young female females out there who have who've got that goal, potentially feeling a bit lost, but have got that goal, got that dream and, and really need someone like yourself to kind of steer us the right way. So we really appreciate you for that. The final question is how we finish every episode of the Peers to Peers podcast. And that is, what is the value of pursuing what you're most passionate about? I think it's it's feeling alive. That's the main value. You know, feeling like you use this time. I'm, I'm a firm believer that that this is a very limited scope that we have on earth. And, and we're all just lucky to get like another day. And that, that feeling of just living the day to the fullest. I think that that's the, that's the main bit. I often talk about taking tips off the table. If you spend one day doing something that you don't like and feeling resentful about it, that's one thing. But if that starts lining up to a seven day or a 10 day or a two week thing, then the, then you know, you're landing in some serious issues. So uh, it's, it's about using your time that you have uh, in life to the fullest, but also feeling alive just like within this single 24-hour period do I feel alive and, and it's sometimes more painful to feel alive than it is uh, to feel numb but uh, I, I personally couldn't imagine looking back and, and I think if you've gone through a bit of loss in your life just like losing loved ones etc then you'll you'll be much more aware that the time that we have is super super limited and that every day that you spend not feeling alive but feeling numb or or sedated or, or checked out is literally just like the only person that's losing is you because you're, it's it's only your like purse of, of a few thousand days that you have in life and and it's just you flipping a coin on those and, and I think that's where where I believe following your passion or following something that makes you feel happy even if it's painful is is just worth it. 
I love it. Ayla, ladies and gentlemen, we have had a blast. Thank you so much. Where can people learn more about you and your work? Yeah, um, feel free to find me on LinkedIn and message me. I'm very happy to have a chat, hop on a Zoom call and see if I can help. I'm, I'm all about kind of giving back to to the community, but all the, all the crap that I'm carrying around with me and all the life lessons, if I can pass any of those on, I'd be very, that would make me happy and hopefully also be quite useful to others. Amazing. We will link that up. Again, thank you so much, Ayla. And for everyone else listening, we will end with that. Peers, that's a wrap. Thank you for tuning in to the latest episode of the Peers to Peers podcast. We hope you've enjoyed your introduction to our latest guest peer and that you find them as gung-ho as we do, which is our way of saying inspirational. For more, make sure to subscribe to our show on iTunes, Spotify, or any app where podcasts are played and leave us a review. We produce with passion and it doesn't stop here. To see what else we're up to, visit thepeersproject.com or follow us on Instagram at thepeersproject. We'll have fresh, real talk for you next week, peers. Until then, if you need inspiration, look amongst your peers. <laughs>